And then we're going to see this preserving pursuit of redemption that God has. Let's read these passages of Scripture. First, Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you may not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate and she gave it to some to her husband who also with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done these, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and in pain you shall bring forth children and your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Let's skip ahead to Genesis chapter 9. Starting in verse 8, it says, And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, and the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. 
And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of my covenant that I have established between me and all flesh on the earth. Let's pray. Lord, guide us. Give us ears to hear your words today. Let us know that you are calling us, you are moving in your redemptive pursuit that we see in Scripture through us, even at this place. Guide our hearts. Father, I ask that the words that we speak, that I speak today, are your words. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So, you know, oftentimes when you have news that somebody comes to you to offer to you, they will sometimes want to prepare you in a way for it, and so they will couch things and maybe even say something like this. I've got good news and I've got bad news. Which news do you want first? And so you get to decide, well, do I want the the bad news or do I want the good news? And there's lots of jokes and ironic things that can be made up about those sort of statements, good news and bad news. Today, I I feel like I need to tell you that I have bad news, and then I have worse news. But at the end, I have the greatest news that you will ever hear. And so, be patient, because I'm not going to give you a choice. (laughs) We're going to do bad, and then we're going to do worse, and then we're going to hear the greatest news that you could possibly hear. Now remember that we're talking about the story of God and his redemptive pursuit of us through scripture. And the pattern that was set and the way that God wanted to work is that he wanted to restore right relationships. And it's at this story of the fall and then the flood that we see how those right relationships, our relationship with God, with ourselves, with others, and with place are fractured. We see where that comes in. But one thing that we need to remember when we look at the fall is this, that God created good. And so sin is the anomaly. Sin is the aberration that comes in. It's not a thing that was sought for. It is the thing that breaks. It is the corruption of good. Augustine says this about sin. Seeking a rational explanation of the origins of sin is like trying to see darkness or hear silence. When we look at sin and we look at our world and we try to come up with a rational explanation of it, it's impossible. It actually doesn't make rational sense. Why? Because the created order that God gave was good. It shouldn't exist. But it does. William says this in his book, As Far as the Curse is Found. Sin is a non-original, historic disruption deep in the history of humankind's experience in God's world. Again, remember, creation is good. And what disobedience did is it brought alienation and discord. Quite honestly, it is our flight from God and our fight against God. We see that taking place in the temptation and the fall of Eve and Adam. It was this understanding and this looking at it 
that this tree and this fruit were what? It says it was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and it was a desire to make one wise. 1 John 2.16 puts it this way. That it provides lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and pride of life. What sin does is it moves us into a place, it takes us to a place where we have moved away from that right relationship of God, our right relationship with ourselves, our right relationship with others, and our right relationship with place. We watch that happen here. What happens? Their relationship with God is hindered. What does Adam and Eve do after they take this fruit? They go, we're naked. We need to hide from God. We can't possibly let him see us. I mean, he created us. He knows everything there is to know about us, but we can't let him see us naked. Think about the irrationality of that statement. And then when God says, where have you been? What's going on? What's the first thing that Adam does? He throws his wife under the bus. <laughs> right? It breaks the relationship that he has with her. He says, oh, no, 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 it was the woman that you gave me. Isn't that the way it is? Often if you have children, you know that when your child is acting up, it's no longer your child, it's your spouse's child, correct? Would you go deal with your child? Sin, that aberration, that thing that is not natural, breaks our relationship with one another. Not only does it do that, it breaks our relationship with ourself. Adam is what called to be the covenant caretaker, the cultural caretaker. And what does he do? Instead of being a blessing, he becomes a curse. It's because of him and his sin that the ground, the place, becomes cursed. Right? Hosea 4 2 and 3 show us quite clearly that because of sin that things are broken. Let me read this to you. It reminds us of how sin breaks our relationship with place. Hosea chapter 4 verses 2 and 3. It says, there is no faithfulness or steadfast love or no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And also the beast of the field and the birds of the heavens and even the fish of the sea are taken away. That when sin breaks in, this unnatural thing, it ruins the relationship that we have with the land, with place. Well, how does that really work out? What does that look like to have this good thing become corrupted? Let's think about food. Food is good. I, I personally really, really like food. I really like good food. I'll be honest, I really like bad food as well. It's okay that I like twisties, right? I like encased meats, sausages, and hot dogs, whatever form or fashion they are. 
I love Reese's peanut butter cups. I will say they're a little different over here than they were in the States, and I'm getting used to it. Food is good. God provided food. It gives us energy. It gives us what we need to live. But if my diet consisted only of Reese's peanut butter cups and chicken twisties, that would not be good. It's corrupted. Or if I say, as I have joked, my ideal weight is 350 pounds, that's something in kilos, I'm sure, That way I could eat whatever I wanted to eat. That's bad. Sin breaks in and says, yes, the good gift that God has given us in food can lead to gluttony. Because my desire is what? To control it, to have it be all that it is for me, that it is my pleasure. It becomes good for my eyes, good for my flesh, and it gives me pride because I can make the decision what I want to eat, when I want to eat, and how I want to eat. Our desire to be effective and efficient are things that God has given us and planted in our lives, to be productive, to make things. But in a corrupt and fallen world, those very things, those drives, we can find our significance in them. And not our significance in the right relationship that we have with God, ourselves, others, and place. And so we become workaholics and we think that if I am doing more and more and more, then my worth is higher and higher, and then people can recognize that I'm good at what I do. And our whole identity gets tied up into something that ultimately will pass away. What sin does is it corrupts, and in its corruption, it brings us to bondage and slavery. Remember, creation's good. It is the thing that comes in and corrupts it and drags us away. So that's the bad. Sin broke in. It came. It's unnatural, it's irrational, but it comes in, and we recognize it. We can see it in our own lives. That even the good things that I have, those good things that God has provided, I can find a way to make them not good. You can probably think of multiple things right now in your own life that have, were good at the beginning, but somehow they've grabbed a hold of you. Even our own attempts at righteousness our desire to please God can be corrupted because of sin. Where we think, well, if I don't do these things, then God won't love me. See, that sin breaking in. But it gets worse. <laughs> it gets worse. We see that taking place after the fall. Just one generation, Cain and Abel, we notice that murder comes onto the scene. And it continues to go until we get to the time of Noah. Williams actually in his book, As Far as the Curse is Found, says this, The trajectory from the garden to the Tower of Babel moves from the illicit promise of moral autonomy. You know, you will be wise, you will be like God. In the serpent's lies to a full-blown culture of ungodliness in which every human is employed in the ultimate act of rebellion, the total denial of God 
in the absolute assumption of their own self-sufficiency. We recognize that take place in the lines that come out of Seth and Cain. You can look at that in Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 6 that lead us to the story of Noah. There is murder. Then there is a calling out that, that a celebration. Lamech celebrates murder. Think of all the men that I've killed, he says. This brokenness moving on and on to the point where God says in chapter 6, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was also only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him in his heart. And so he said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and the animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I wanted to tell you that George Carlin, the comedian who's an atheist and has passed away since and probably is not the best guy to recommend or quote in a sermon, wrote this, because that's what the internet told me. But then I went on Snoops and I discovered it really wasn't George Carlin, the atheist, who wrote this particular thing that I'm about to read to you entitled The Paradox of Our Time. It was actually a pastor in Seattle named Bob Moorhead. But it would have been really cool if it had been George Carlin. But this is what The Paradox of Our Time says. The paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings but shorter tempers. Wider freeways, but narrower viewpoints. We spend more and have less. We buy more, but we enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families. More conveniences, but less time. We have more degrees, but less sense. More knowledge, but less judgment. More experts, but more problems. More medicine, but less wellness. We drink too much, smoke too much, spend too recklessly, laugh too little, drive too fast, get too angry too quickly, stay up too late, get up too tired, read too seldom, watch TV too much, and pray too seldom. We have multiplied our possessions but reduced our values. We talk too much, love too seldom, and hate too often. We've learned how to make a living but not a life. We've added years to our life but not life to our years. We've been all the way to the moon and back, but having trouble crossing the street to meet a new neighbor. We've conquered outer space, but not inner space. We've done large things, but not better things. We've cleaned up the air, but polluted our soul. We've split the atom, but not our prejudice. We write more, but learn less. We plan more, but accomplish less. We've learned to rush, but not to wait. We build more computers to hold more information to produce to produce more copies than ever, but have less communication. These are the times of fast foods and slow digestions, tall men and short character, steep profits and shallow relationships. These are the times of world peace but domestic warfare, more leisure but less fun, more kinds of food but less nutrition. These are the days of two incomes but more divorce, of fancier homes but broken homes. These are the days of quick trips, disposable diapers, throwaway morality, one-night stands, overweight bodies, and pills that do everything from cheer to quiet to kill. 
We're not too far off from the worst. And we have to look at it and go, yeah, is that really where we are? And it's easy for us to rest in that place and go, yes, it's awful. And it's going to hell in a handbasket. Because it gets worse. See, sin is so corruptive. It's so insidious that it digs deep into our very heart and whispers the lie that you being God, you being the one that rules yourself, will give you all that you desire and make you feel better than you've ever felt before. That's where they were at. That's what was happening. That's the worst news. But this is the story of God. This is the story of God's redemptive pursuit for us through Scripture. And we move from this idea of bad to worse to the best news you will ever hear. Because in these stories, we see God preserving so that He can pursue His people. We see Him move to a place of preserving creation and mankind. What does it say? He didn't want to have anything to do with them anymore. But Noah found favor. That does not mean that Noah was doing everything right. That does not mean that Noah was such an exemplary person. That doesn't even mean that when God looked across the board, he goes, well, he's not as bad as everyone else. What it means is that God saw Noah and he placed his favor upon him. He said, Noah is the man that I will work through He will be the mediator of my covenant to all people. He will be the one that I will choose at this moment, at this time, at this place, in order to preserve all of creation. And that is the best news that we have. Where do we see it happening? Well, first in Adam and Eve, we see this. They were guaranteed to die. But what does God say to Adam? You will work hard, you will toil, but you will eat bread and you will have food. What does that mean? He will preserve him. He will move forward. Does childbirth stop? No. Is there more pain in it now? Yes. But it doesn't stop. That means new creation, new life will be coming about. What do we see in what Noah is told by God? It takes everything. Our relationship with him our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, and our relationship with place fully in the covenant that he gives to him. God says this, but behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring. So you who you are, I have called you and your offspring, all of your family that I have saved, all those around you. And to every living creature, all the birds and the livestock, so all of creation, I will never destroy it by water again. I've established my covenant with you forever. You see, the no that the world shouts out at God in sin, in the fall, cannot turn aside the yes that he has in his covenant. The breadth and the promise of his covenant. Really, this is the story of the world that has lost its moorings. 
The story that we see between the fall and the ark is the story of a world that's lost its moorings, but it's also the story of God's intimate and compassionate and faithful love. When we hear about the flood and the people that die, we think that way because our hearts want to turn against God because of the sin that corrupts. But that is unnatural. Our natural tendency, the way that God created us to be, was in right relationship with Him, acknowledging that He is preserving mankind through Noah and through the ark. And then there's this beautiful picture here that we see of this rainbow. Really, the word there is a battle bow. And what God is doing is laying aside the bow, setting it aside, and saying, I have made a peace treaty with you. I will continue to hold you and keep you. I will pursue you and preserve you. And it turns us to an understanding that our life of faith is lived in a world of ambiguity and tension. We must acknowledge that. That the created world is fallen. That Adam is expelled from the garden, but life goes on. That Cain is punished by God for killing his brother, yet he is also protected by God. That the story of the flood itself is a story of mercy and of rescue in the very place of judgment and devastation. That God saving Noah preserves all of the world. And now we see Noah is given God's blessing. But he also requires of him to live justly for him. And that's almost impossible. Because God's perfect world and his perfect will come in contact with a very far from perfect world and a very far from perfect humanity. I don't see many smiles. That doesn't seem to have cheered you up much. But wait. Anselm of Canterbury says this. Who has truly pondered the weight of sin? His answer, the one who has truly pondered the weight of the cross. Oh, we want to stay in this story because we're looking at it from broad scopes, but it's impossible for us to stay there because we have to move always to the fact that in the promise that was given to Adam and Eve that I, your seed will crush the head of the serpent, the promise that was given to Noah of persevering and preserving creation, of not destroying it, finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.11 goes on to tell us that He has killed the hostility that is between God and between us. That's between you and I. It has been nailed to the cross that Christ came preaching peace to those who were near and those who were far off. That it is only when we hear the good news of what Christ has done that we can look back and see the promise that was made to Noah. That he was preserving in order for Christ to come. 
And it restores in that our right relationships with God and with ourselves and with others and with place. So what does that mean for us as a church? It means this, that as we see the story of God and his redemptive pursuit, it should remind us that God is continually on the move. He is continually pursuing and seeking those whom he would save. If God is on the move, then we should be as well. Not in some sort of programmatic way, not in a way that we're like, well, we need to get our numbers up, but we should be the promise of God. We are the rainbow to those around us, showing how God has set aside His wrath through His Son, Jesus Christ, We move into our neighbor's lives. We come with goodness to the people around us. Why? Because there is not enmity between us anymore. Now, does that mean we might plant other churches? If God wills it, and that's his desire, yes. Does that mean that I should know my neighbors and be praying for their salvation and living such a life that they smell the sweet aroma of life? and are drawn to it? Yes, as should you. That we live the promise, the vow, the rainbow that God has set. We are the ones that do that. And we should always be in our lives calling forth this. Grace abounds. Grace is offered and grace is here. That in this story, we see grace. Let's pray. Lord, if these words be your words, let them take firm root in who you are. And if they're not, let them burn up. We ask that they bear fruit for you and for your glory and for your goodness. Thank you. Thank you for preserving us. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Amen. Would you please stand and let's respond by reading this passage together. We'll start at blessed. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Amen. You may be seated. We prepare for our time of communion, this Lord's Supper, this reminder of the work that God has done in His relentless pursuit of redemption of His people, that He has done that through His Son Jesus, and that's what we remember and call to mind as we take these elements. 
I want to let you know that while we take these elements today, Andy will be singing a song that he's sung the last couple of weeks, and we invite you to sing with him as he is doing that. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body that is given for you. Take and eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this wine is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. Take, drink, do this in remembrance of me. If you're here today and you are hearing this good news but are washed with the bad news that is still lingering in your life and you can't quite get to the place or think in your mind that God could accept you where you're at, let me first say he does. <laughs> he wants you. But if you don't believe this, if you don't believe what we're talking about, that Jesus is the Son of God, who is the one who responds and redeems us, then I ask you to wait and pray about this. Think about it. I pray that even today you will know. And if you're here and you believe this, but you have enmity that is between you and your brother or sister, you have division that is among you, I ask you to hold off. Repair that. Because Christ put that to death on the cross. And seek Him first. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'll take these elements, that they will be yours, that they will bring you glory and honor and praise. That they will remind us of your sacrifice, but they will remind us most of all of our adoption. That they have brought us into the family of God, that we are now your sons and your daughters. We praise you today. Amen.